0: Money FM 89.3. Best of Breakfast. Morning Shot. Singapore has made significant strides since the Singapore Green Plan 2030 was launched two years ago. But to achieve those bold goals, our little red dot must press ahead with its intergenerational effort to steward a green, livable, and climate-resilient home for every one of us. At the recent Committee of Supply Debates following Budget 2023, the Ministry for Sustainability and the Environment unveiled ways in which the government is set to lead and facilitate the city's transition to a climate-friendly nation. Areas of focus include sustainability disclosures, plans to enhance coastal protection and flood management, as well as a push to boost Singapore's food security. For more on how we're charting our sustainability journey, we're joined now by Miss Grace Fu, Minister for Sustainability and the Environment. Welcome to the show, Minister
1: Thank you very much, Lynn. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, first off, let's touch on the public sector's intention to lead the charge on disclosing environmental sustainability performance annually. How different do you envision this to be compared to what's currently being done?
1: Well, currently, we do have environmental standards stipulated in our tenders. What we intend to do, first of all, is to expand the, the scope of step boards and agencies that are included. So we're going to have all parties that receive government funding to be part of GreenGov.SG initiative. So the scope is much wider, includes some of the hospitals as well as universities that government funds. The second point is about putting additional requirements. So right now we require products to meet environmental standards. For example, if we buy paper, if we buy ICT equipment, they need to meet minimum energy standards or environmental standards. What we're going to do next is to put in additional requirements. So besides meeting these environmental efficiency standards, we're going to look at other ways where we can reduce carbon footprint through this procurement. So give an example when it comes to, say, ICT equipment, laptop, for example. uh, Besides the laptop themselves meeting energy standards, we also look at how packaging can be done to reduce waste in the process of logistics. So there are many ways where suppliers can propose to us ways that they can reduce the carbon footprint of the whole procurement process and we will put that into our evaluation process. So right now, we're looking at possibly putting 5% Mm -hmm. of evaluation criteria. We will review this proportion as we go further. We are also thinking about extending the types of contracts. We're going to start with building We're going to start with ICT. These are some of the major types of procurement projects. And we are looking at extending the scope further.
0: Globally, there's been a lot of talk on greenwashing and now green hushing as well. To what extent do you hope this move will encourage private firms to do the same? And what would you say is lacking? Well, I I must admit
1: that I think in the environmental sustainability sector, we have had several setbacks. There have been issues with, for example, carbon credits that didn't quite meet environmental standards. There were also issues with misreporting. So I think this is a very new area. I mean, we are evolving environmental and sustainability standards as we speak. There are new standards being formulated. There are new products being introduced, there are new loans that being granted, new contractual framework being set up every day because there's so much innovation, there's so much new technology that's coming into the market. So in this process, it's inevitable that you know, we are struggling to do with reporting, capturing, measuring carbon impact. So I think we should take a pragmatic approach. That's my personal belief that we want companies to, first of all, be mindful and be prepared to pledge. And then we can look at how they are progressing. We can't reach a decarbonized world in one step. No companies can, no countries can. So I think it's important for us to look at movement and progress rather than where are we in the absolute stance. So we may make mistakes in the process. Sometimes we get our accounting standards or auditing standards or measurement standards wrong. But the fact that there is a large ecosystem out there, there are people watching this, monitoring it, studying it, giving feedback to one another, that we are able to progress. From time to time, we're going to have some bad guys, you know, who misrepresented or intentionally greenwashing. But I believe that these are the minorities, because there's serious reputational damage if they do so. And I think when people call them out, it sends a signal to the rest. But the other companies should really take the intention that they're going to put sustainability in their decision framework. And I think others should judge them based on their actions, not the absolute position, but really how much progress have they made and how much improvements have they made in their processes.
0: Minister, we know you've been involved in Forward Singapore conversations in relation to the focus on strengthening Singapore's coastal protection and flood management capabilities, in particular with those living in the eastern part of Singapore. Talk us through some of the key concerns residents in the east have and are there interesting feedback or suggestions that your ministry is looking to explore further?
1: Well, first of all, I think coastal protection is something that uh, deserves our attention because climate change will cause sea level rise and with more extreme weather events, you we expect, you know, greater tidal differences and therefore greater impact on our coastal areas. And there is some projection that if we had one metre rise in sea level, as it is, if we are not doing anything to protect our coastlines, we may have 30% of the island inundated by floodwaters. So we really need to take steps. And in this Forward Singapore conversation, I think there's very interesting discussions. East Coast is the first area because obviously I think we all love East Coast and we want to really protect that for ourselves, for recreation. We would like to see how we can protect also the property along East Coast as well. So in the conversation, there are many, many trade-offs that we talked about. First of all, there's a trade-off between users of East Coast. There are local users, people who live nearby. There are also people who go there from all parts of the country for you know, various types of activities. So you have the ones who are doing surfing, the ones that are doing sailing versus the ones that's fishing. They obviously, they want the coastline for different purposes. Some of them mm-hmm. would like it quiet, not to disturb the fish. Some of them like it active. Mm-hmm. So how do we have that trade-off and how do we bring in activities along the coast that can allow different users to have their way and also to enjoy the coastlines? There's also the uses between, say, the F&B operators and the active beach goers—they have obviously different considerations as well. The F&B would want, you know, protection for their business, whereas you know some of the beach goers want proximity to water. There's also a serious discussion about, you know, when should we start the construction of infrastructure to protect our coastlines? Do we start now when we see that things are calm? There doesn't seem to be any need to do anything now. Do we want to set aside money? and start investing in serious infrastructure that we are talking here? And if so, how do we have trade-offs between functionality of the infrastructure and also cost-effectiveness. To be very blunt, if I want it to be most effective, I just built a strong concrete seawall you know, along the entire stretch of East Coast Parkway. That would be most effective, but that's also probably least desired by the users. So how do we find structures that continue to allow us the kind of lifestyles, our relationship with the beach to continue, at the same time, effective in protecting ourselves, protecting our property, protecting our safety, if we do have a storm surge, a serious storm surge? So these are very serious questions that we have to ask ourselves. And I think the participants went away realizing that actually there are many serious decisions to be made. And while they recognize that's important to participate, they also realise that they need to develop the understanding of the issues at heart. So it's not going to be once-off, you know, I just come in and tell you what I like to do the beach, but rather we need involved citizens, we need involved residents who will go through this process with us as we go through the approach and the plan for infrastructure planning to be involved in each step so that we can be involved and be informed of the options, the engineering options uh, we could have, the kind of effectiveness of each of the measures. And so just look at options availability Mm. and coming out with a consensus of what's the best in terms of taking care of the user's requirement as well as effectiveness of the infrastructure.
0: Fantastic. Very exciting indeed. Moving to the consumer front, charges for disposable carrier bags will commence at supermarkets from early July. How receptive is the public to this move? And are we looking at how other cities who are doing the same when they took the first step and what are some of the potential challenges that you foresee?
1: You know, this proposal that we have on the table actually has been in the making for maybe three years or more. We started with very extensive engagement both with the environmental groups as well as with, you know, other stakeholders such as low-income Singaporeans. And we consulted about 6,000 people in the process and also in our survey that we have conducted with 1,000 Singaporeans. It is very interesting that, you know, out of these 1,000 people, 90% percent realize that actually, you know, it is important for us to tackle excessive use of plastic waste. And 80% thinks that excessive use of plastic actually deteriorates the environment, has a negative impact on the environment. Mm. And 70% realise that actually applying a cost on disposable carrier bags will have an impact. In other words, when there's a cost applied on the bags, people will think twice about taking the extra one. So putting all these together... We felt that this would be a right move. We are not having a complete ban on the use of plastic bags, unlike some other countries. Because in Singapore, we incinerate all our waste. So we have a very good, effective waste collection system. We don't have, you know, plastic waste in landfill that get washed out into the sea. We collect all of them, we incinerate them. So actually the considerations in Singapore is quite different from say another country when they landfill their waste. Putting all these considerations together, we thought that not a complete ban, but a charge. A charge Mm -hmm. so that we can regulate the use of plastic bags. So instead of taking five in the past, we take only what we need. Or better still, bring a reusable bag and Mm -hmm. avoid taking extra disposable bags. The concerns of citizens are very valid. First of all, do I still have bags? To bag my litter before I put that into a, you know, my rubbish chute in the HDB flat. And second, you know, will the supermarkets benefit and make profits out of the charge? So the first point is that actually, because we are not banning plastic bags or disposable bags completely, there will still be plastic bags available. So, for example, if you buy from some other shops, such as bookshops or mm-hmm. sports shops, or clothings. You can get plastic bags as well. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I think there are other baggages that come our way, whether it's for diapers, whether it's for tissue boxes or toilet rolls, they can be used for bagging of rubbish. So I think that if we are mindful and we look out for all the plastic bags that we have in our homes, we can find alternative use Mm -hmm. for bagging our rubbish before we bin it. On the issue of charges, What do the supermarkets do with the proceeds that they collect? We want them to, first of all, report how much they're collecting. And secondly, what would they want to do about it? And most of them, when we talk to them, have agreed that they're going to use it for social or environmental causes. So, for example, they could help their local community support low-income family with reusable bags. Or they can help to say, you know, do a recollection of plastic bags or some environmental drive to do recycling. So mm. anything that can help promote environmental consciousness, as well as you know, to promote social causes, if they're worried about low-income family, will be very very supportive of that use of proceeds.
0: Minister, another area of focus we want to talk about is food security, of course. On one hand, we see a lot done to uplift the agri-food industry by boosting R&D, as well as introduction of new food types. But some local producers have voiced that the take-up or demand for local produce is still not matching up to expectations. How are you planning to shift mindsets of consumers to go local?
1: You know, we are really starting the agri-tech sector. We're at the nascent stage. Uh, The reason why I'm saying this is because we are looking for a sector that is highly productive, highly precise, as well as Mm science-based. We need the agri-tech industry to be climate resilient. So this is very different from, say, the farming of the past. If I just farm in this open sea or if I farm in, you know, just open land, it's subjected to weather. If I don't have rain or if too much rain or if I have a problem with the quality of the seawater because of contamination, because of an oil spill, it wipes up the produce of that harvest So how do we have a climate resilient sector that's highly productive? We need it to be highly productive because we are very short of land. So now we are looking at, you know, many times of production per hectare, Mm. maybe seven, eight, nine times of what we have been producing. So technology application, automation, IOT, sensors, these are all necessary to ensure a climate resilient, highly productive farm sector. Having said that, it means that, you know, the offtake has to be there. Consumers must take it off the producers. They need to invest so much more so that certainty of demand has to be there. Now, if I'm a farm and if I produce 10 kilograms a day, that may seem a lot for me for the start. But if you talk to a Fair Price or a Sing Siong, they will say that, hey, I have 100 outlets. 10 kilograms is not going to make a dent. Mm-hmm. How can you assure me there is constant demand? supply so that my shelves can be filled up with fresh vegetables every day. Mm. So obviously, I think that needs to be a lot to be done in business development. So if we settled the production side, now we really need to look at the market development, the demand development side of business. And this is where I think a lot of discussion needs to take place among the farmers and also between the farmers and the off-takers, the people who buy from them. And if you're say producing 5% of the demand, well, you can say that I'm just going to talk to one or two restaurants who are doing some nice or a high end, you know, local produce menu. But if you're talking about 30%, then it's really cutting into mass market. We're talking about the supermarkets. We're talking about hotels. We're talking about caterers yes. and the caterers, hotels, they need certainty. They need volume and they need certain standardization of quality so that we know that if we order a chai sim, the same type will come rather than, you know, come in different forms and shapes or colors of different species. So there's standardization that's needed. And that's where I think all the farmers need to come together. We have formed an alliance for action in February, really to bring them together with the off-takers, with the caterers, with the hotels who can really buy in bulk And then come up with a kind of agreement with the sort of certainty in offtake then the farmers will be confident enough to invest because you are talking about the fish farmers or egg farmers the time when they start the fingerlings to the time when the fish is ready for harvest it could be 6 12 18 months so if you do not have the certainty of the contract 16 12 18 months down the road It's very difficult for them to come up with the money to buy all the sort of inputs, all the feeds and so on. So Mm -hmm. it works both ways. We need both the demand aggregators as well as the producers to come Mm -hmm. together and work out a contractual agreement that is both win-win. Why is Mm -hmm. it win-win for the off-takers? Because, as we have seen, climate is playing a much bigger impact on food supply. And also, we have seen, you know, just recently we talked about, you know, floods in Malaysia affecting supply of vegetables to Singapore. Prices are, you know, volatile. So, it is also in the interest of the food aggregators, the the demand uh, people, to have certainty of supplies to them. So I think it's win-win for us that can work out a good deal for each other so that the local produce can really be a resilient supply of food to the Singapore food system.
0: Okay, Minister, on a lighter note, it's International Women's Day. So we want to take the chance to ask you if there's one woman leader you look up to personally.
1: You know, I've been asked this question many times and I have great difficulties just naming one because in my life, I've been influenced by so many women. From the women in my households my mother, my grandmother, who remain working throughout their career life and their healthy life, they have given me the confidence that, you know, I can manage both work and family. In my early careers, there are role models such as Fang Ailien, who has been the woman managing partner of EY, Eun Sen And she has been inspirational. Again, career woman with children, with good children, and really a leader in the community as well, doing a lot of community work. And then when I joined politics, there are people, I think her name is not quite mentioned these days. It's called Wu Yi, who was a Chinese leader many years back. And you know, her image on stage is no nonsense, serious. But I've also seen her in her more informal times. And she's able to interact. She's able to make people comfortable. And she's so approachable. So it taught me something about being a leader as well. You don't always have to be formal. You don't have to be serious. And in your own way, you can make people comfortable. You can make yourself relatable. So I've learned so much from women around us. And I think that's what women can do. Learn from many people around you. Everybody has something to offer. And I'm learning a lot from the younger women these days as well how they interact on social media, how they harness the power of social media for marketing. So I think as long as you have an open mind, you have you know very observant eyes and ears, I think you can learn a lot from women around you.
0: And just linking back to what you do, we've seen a good number of women leaders in the environment sphere globally. From your perspective, why is women leadership so important in climate action decision-making and are there specific aspects of the field that you feel need more women representation?
1: You know, climate change actually affects women disproportionately because we're the caretaker. We are at home. We look after our children. We look after households. I just, you know, sometimes did not realise that actually women around the world are impacted by climate change so much. You know, you have women who have to walk many, many kilometres every day just to collect fresh water and they have to walk further and further away because water is becoming less available and, you know, they Their usual sources have dried up. And you come back, you know, to reality and you look at poverty. Women having to look after children that have gone without food. There's malnutrition and suffering from many illnesses as a result of hunger. Women really disproportionately affected by climate change. And therefore, I think we have to bring that perspective to decision making. And we found that companies where there are more women representation on board, first of all, it's more diverse, it makes better decisions because of the diversity, and somehow they are more prepared to tackle climate issues and they're more prepared to report on climate. I think that's a positive sign. Women, I think, generally care more about the legacy that they leave behind and also their impact, companies' impact on the community, on the society. So I think that if we can bring more women to decision-making, it's definitely helpful for climate action. More importantly, actually, it's women in political as well as, you know, kind of international level because we need to bring that conversation really onto the international level because Climate is international, transboundary issue that no one single country can solve on its own. And we need that collaboration and cooperation from all countries. And I think women have that perspective and also the skill sets to bring people together and to forge consensus.
0: And on that positive note, thank you very much, Minister. We've been speaking with Minister for Sustainability and the Environment, Ms. Grace Fu. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And happy International Women's
1: Day to all the women listeners out there.
0: To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.